Welcome to the podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. My name is Minnie Baragwanath, and this series is based on my book by the same name. Blindingly Obvious is my story. It is a candid and deeply personal story about my life and work as a blind woman, social entrepreneur, and innovator. I wrote it in order to share my experience of blindness with others and in the hope that it might raise awareness and invite others to actively create a more accessible future, one that is full of possibility. A wonderful voiceover artist and now friend of mine, Romy Hooper, has narrated my full book, all 24 chapters. I do so hope you enjoy listening. It is an absolute pleasure to be able to share it with you. 1. Mini Haha and the House on the Hill It was 11pm on the 11th of May 1970 in the Palmerston North Maternity Ward. It was another freezing cold and bleak winter's night in the Manawatu, and Mum was giving birth. Earlier that day, Mum had been out pushing my older brothers, Michael and Damon, on the swings at the Esplanade Playground. My nana, Winifred, had come down from Auckland to offer Mum support with the two boys as her due date approached. Mum, Rosemary, and Dad, John, were hoping for a girl this time. When I popped out, in my mother's words, I was the easiest birth of all her children, Dad, who was very dark-haired, almost Italian-looking, immediately checked to see if I had eyebrows. Mum was very fair, rather Flemish-looking, which she hated, and eyebrows were not her strong point. That's lucky. She won't have to draw them on herself, Dad said. But of greater concern than my eyebrows was the fact that the doctor was initially worried about the size of my very large head. He wondered if I had hydrocephalus, or what is more commonly known as water on the brain. He looked at both my parents' heads and realised that big heads were a family trait. I was promptly given the name Amanda Jane Baragwanath. However, this new name did not last long. As a wee baby, I laughed a lot from a very, very early age a trait that has remained with me throughout my life. In fact, one of mum's favourite memories of me was as a wee baby, when on one occasion I started to throw a massive tantrum. Mum got down on the floor and copied me in my tantrum. I abruptly stopped my screaming and thrashing of limbs, looked at her and suddenly cracked up laughing, never to throw another tantrum again. Naturally, my mother started to call me little mini ha-ha, a reference to the wonderful character in the epic poem by Longfellow. Minnehaha was Hiawatha's girlfriend, and her name meant laughing water. While some people loved my laughter, it also seemed to get me into trouble on occasions throughout my life. I recall once, when I was about seven, being kicked out of the cool gang at College Street Normal Primary School by my childhood friend Simon Power, because I laughed too much. Luckily, Simon redeemed himself some 30 years later, when, as an MP, he supported my bid for government funding for my social change work. Funnily enough, we always laugh and joke together when we catch up now. The only times in my life I was called Amanda were in very formal situations, or by my grandparents, who probably had unfortunate memories of the infamous Minnie Dean. She was the last woman in New Zealand to be hung for murder. And to make matters worse, she happened to murder children. All that aside, I am Minnie, and I have always loved my name. 
My family name is a bit of a mouthful and can intimidate some people, making them nervous about pronouncing it when they first see it written down. I have certainly spent a lot of my life spelling out my name over the phone, in hospital wards and in shops. The name Baragwanath, which comes from my father John, is Cornish and can be roughly translated as brown bread, which is rather humbling. However, as is the case with many Celtic names, Baragwanath can also be traced back to Sanskrit, where it means either God of Gods or Devil of Devils, perhaps depending on your mood. Strangely enough, the Sanskrit is the translation rather than the Cornish that I notice we as a family often choose to reference. Certainly all the Baragwanaths in New Zealand today are related to one another, as well as to many others throughout the Commonwealth. While we are a wonderful mix of Celtic, Scottish and English, and are thus representative of the early Pākehā settlers in Aotearoa, we have also recently discovered Hungarian genes on my mother Rosemary's side of the family. We had not known this because her father was abducted by his father and his mistress as a six-year-old, along with his five-year-old brother. They were both sworn to secrecy and brought to New Zealand from Australia in the early 1900s never to see their birth mother and other siblings again. It was not until late in his life that this secret emerged, and only recently were we able to trace the previously unknown maternal family name of his birth mother, my great-grandmother, Imre. My mother was always sure she had European and or Jewish heritage, as she said she felt more at home in Europe and in Israel than she ever did as a vibrant, tall, red-headed, outspoken and passionate woman growing up in New Zealand. Recently discovering that her relatives were Hungarian, and yes, Flemish, weavers and makers of fine silk fabrics and maps, even going on to develop the sextant navigation tool, felt like a confirmation. By chance, both my parents had lost their fathers at an early age and were largely brought up without a lot of money by their mothers. They also both had quite profound experiences of poor health and or disability early on in their lives. Growing up, Dad developed a terrible facial tick and bad stammer after being brutally forced to stop writing left-handed and instead told to use his right hand, as was the practice in New Zealand schools in the 40s and 50s. This was exacerbated when his father, Jack, a senior political writer at the New Zealand Herald, who was tipped to become the next editor, died suddenly at the end of the Second World War from tuberculosis, leaving his wife, Pearl, to raise the two boys alone on a widow's pension. Dad was very clever. He always seemed to know fascinating facts about science and the natural world. I remember he had a small, scaly, fossilised snake he had picked up during his time as a vet student in Queensland, as well as a trilobite that he kept on the shelf in our brown 70s living room beside his treasured stereo and collection of jazz and world music. He had learnt how to drum and then play the double bass when his stammering became really bad as a teenager, and music stayed a passion throughout his life. We also think Dad may well have been on the Asperger spectrum as he struggled enormously with social situations, change, and, well, a lot of things, actually. But one thing I never doubted was that he loved me very much. My mother, Rosemary Baragwanath, is not easily summed up. I have never met a more fierce and more committed proponent of social justice in my life. 
If she felt something was wrong, she simply had to voice her concerns and act. A trait that has only developed as she has gotten older. Once, as a four-year-old child, she went up to her father and kicked him hard in the shins because she felt he was being unfair to her older brother, Selwyn. Later in life, this sense of fairness and desire for social justice resulted in her campaigning for the end of apartheid in South Africa, protecting our native forests here in Aotearoa, defending the rights of Pacific Island overstayers, and reminding us all of our duty as citizens to be alert and proactive shapers and guardians of our democracy. I honestly believe that somewhere in Wellington, there is an archive with her name on it of letters she has written to Parliament over many decades. The youngest of five, Mum became very ill as a 12-year-old child with nephritis, chronic and life-threatening kidney failure. She spent a year totally bedridden and unable to go to school or play with friends. She spent hours playing cards, reading stories about missionaries, designing houses and creating designs for clothes. When Mum finally recovered, her father Fred died shortly after from a boating accident at Lake Tarawera, where the family had a batch. Fred was an entrepreneur and had run the family plumbing business in Auckland, A.E. Upton and Sons Plumbing. The building and original signage is still there today on Fanshawe Street in the city. Charming and with political aspirations, Fred was on the local school board and president of the local St. Helier's Tennis Club. He left his wife widowed and soon virtually penniless. Mum grew up with powerful examples of social justice and Christianity in action all around her. Her own mother taught Sunday school at the local Presbyterian church at St. Helier's Bay in Auckland and knitted jerseys for people with leprosy in the Pacific. During the 1919 flu epidemic and depression in the 1930s, Mum's great aunt, who later married the local minister, used to cycle around Thames on her bicycle, distributing food to the poor and needy. Given her upbringing and the limited career options for women at the time, becoming a nurse was, for mum, probably inevitable. She had an extraordinary ability to care for her patients and to bring them joy by making them laugh. She also battled tirelessly throughout her life to improve the conditions for patients in New Zealand hospitals, often to her own detriment. Had mum been born today, however, I think she would have been a politician, or maybe a writer, a fashion designer, or perhaps an architect. Well, anything she wanted to be. She possesses a razor-sharp intellect, a powerful questioning mind, crystal-clear values, and is also incredibly creative. Mum very intentionally had the four of us, Michael, Damon, me, and Scott, all approximately a year apart, which meant she had four of us under five years old. I look back now and wonder how on earth she managed with us all. She once told me that she actually wanted to adopt another four children, but eventually reviewed that noble idea. I cannot imagine how different our lives would have been if she had. Mum believes her background in nursing prepared her very well for the practicalities of motherhood and ran a rather efficient daily schedule for us. On top of this, Dad was just starting out on his career as a vet and also needed a lot of support. As this was well before cell phones, Mum had to man the radio telephone and manage calls for Dad from home. Much of Dad's early work was around Dargaville, in the upper north of the North Island, and then the Manawatu for the rest of his professional life. 
He was mostly focused on large animals at that time, cows, horses, sheep, etc., only later specialising in small domestic animals. This meant navigating a complex network of poorly mapped rural roads and addresses. My mother's side of the family were map makers, but my father's side seemed to totally lack any sense of direction. We discovered later in Dad's life that, probably due to those Cornish genes, Dad was also night blind. You can just imagine what it was like driving in the car on long summer holiday road trips from the Manawatu to Fananaki in the far north in the 1970s, with six of us in the Holden Kingswood. Not exactly relaxing. Dad required absolute silence so he could concentrate while driving along the poorly signposted, hot, dry, dusty gravel roads, lined by ancient Pohutukawa trees. Not an easy ask with four highly energetic children in the back seat of the car. Mum would sit in the front seat beside Dad and navigate, using the old AA map books. Dad would periodically yell at us to be quiet, which we would do briefly before the squabbling started up again out of sheer boredom. There are only so many times you can play I Spy with My Little Eye. The greatest treat on these long journeys was when we stopped to buy Wrigley's chewing gum. We each got our own individual pack and could choose our own preferred flavour. I always chose Juicy Fruit, my absolute favourite. The thing I treasured most about these long summer holidays was that I got to go fishing with Dad. Dad loved to fish, and every morning he would head out along the expansive treeless beach with his surfcaster fishing rod and wait patiently for a bite. On the times we went to the local wharf, I would go with him, holding my very own wee black and gold fishing rod. One day after I had just caught a kahawai, I tentatively asked him, Dad, do you get a tingling feeling in your feet too when you're about to catch a fish? Lovingly, he looked down at me with pride and delight. Yes, Minnie, I do. Dad and I had a special connection when I was a child. One of Mum's incredible attributes was her extraordinary ability to create the most wondrous homes and gardens. For most of our childhood, we lived in a very old two-story wooden house that had once been the homestead for a local farm out near Massey University in Palmerston North. It was entirely normal for us to go off to school with our living room and bedrooms looking one way and then coming home to find she had painted the rooms, sewn new curtains, cushion covers and bedspreads, and utterly transformed the house. Our home was always so full of vibrant colour and energy. Fresh bunches of yellow and white daisies, blue hydrangeas, roses and other glorious flowers picked from Mum's extraordinary garden regularly filled the airy rooms with colour and fragrance. A mixture of homemade, as well as original New Zealand artwork, ceramics and an assortment of other upcycled objects filled every wall, shelf, table, nook and cranny with endless interest and curiosity. In the summertime, an array of oriental lamps and large white paper light shades from Wa Lee's Chinese Emporium in Auckland ensured the house glowed a soft golden light at night when all the doors were open to the sound of crickets and children laughing. Mum would regularly return from the local tip with a wicker chair or table or anything that could be salvaged and made beautiful again with a fresh coat of paint. My brothers and I each had old metal hospital beds that were painted bright yellow or red, or whatever colour we wanted, 
and as far as I knew, we were the only family who had lime green doors throughout the house. Throughout our childhood, the house on the hill, as we still refer to it, seemed to be full of sunshine, fresh, glorious air, and bountiful life. There was always something playing on the stereo. Our childhood was a never-ending soundtrack of Neil Diamond, Mahalia Jackson, Demis Roussos, and Harry Belafonte, interspersed with Beethoven symphonies, Mozart concertos, Obisa, and yes, the occasional whale sounds from a record we pulled out from the pages of a National Geographic magazine. Scott and I also had a collection of solid gold LPs, the Grease soundtrack, and of course, ABBA, which we all danced and sang along to constantly. I now think Mum was a precursor to The Block TV show and all these makeover programs we see today. She certainly was a pioneer in so many areas of her life. Today, I know it is due to Mum's example that I have been able to see beyond just what is literally in front of me. Instead, thanks to her, I am able to see what might be possible. I understand the power of human creativity to create joy through beauty and good design. Whether that involves the simple act of bringing a bunch of freshly picked flowers inside to literally brighten up a room, or taking on an old forgotten piece of furniture and breathing new life back into it. Through her example, she has given me a precious gift, the ability to transform the world around me. This privileged and quite bohemian home life meant I had an incredible childhood growing up in the Manawatu in the 1970s. I spent many hours running free and wild in the surrounding farmlands by Massey University, where we lived. We always seemed to be playing, exploring, building, climbing, and being left to imagine and create new worlds and possibilities. I remember spending hours just following a friendly Piwakawaka, Fantail. I nicknamed Cheeky, as it made its way zigzagging, flitting and darting from branch to branch, tree to tree, and the overgrown trees and bushes below our house. Amongst that wilderness, there were two tiny, abandoned, and ramshackle goat sheds, dripping with glorious honeysuckle and sweet jasmine, the perfect size huts to play make-believe. One moment they were a shop where we could sell freshly picked wild jonquils, or highly fragrant white and green onion flowers to any customers who might wander past, usually a brother, one of our three cats, or a wee bird. The next, they were the houses we would run away to if we just needed time out. And other times, they were simply shelter from the rain if we were caught unawares, while out on our daily adventures climbing trees and digging for hidden treasure amongst their roots. I guess I was a tomboy in many ways, and having three brothers, all very close in age, ensured, in my mother's words, I was not a prissy little girl. Looking back, Miss Piggy from the Muppets TV show that we watched religiously as a family was a huge influence on me. She was a wonderful mixture of glamour and fierce independence. No one would mess with Miss Piggy and her karate chop, and she always looked great. I do remember on several occasions threatening to beat up the local boys if they were going to hurt Scotty, my younger brother, or his friends. My best friend growing up was Rachel Looney, who lived next door. We spent many hours playing with our dolls and making up games and performances for our parents and neighbours. Yes, Looney was indeed her surname, and I must admit that on one occasion when we went to the local Cobb Co. restaurant to celebrate Rachel's eighth birthday, 
I shamefully held back when the waitress announced that a table was ready for eight loonies. Rachel and I were known throughout the neighborhood for our entrepreneurial activities. We were always looking for ways to make money by selling almost anything we could think of. If we were not successful selling lemonade at our street stalls, we would actually then go door to door. Our fundraising was not usually for ourselves. We often invented schemes to raise money for local causes and telethons, an annual event on New Zealand television in the 1970s. During the telethon year of the disabled in 1981, Rachel and I offered to collect rubbish off the street. Our rate was $1 per bag of rubbish. As it turned out, there was not that much rubbish to collect, so we decided to fill the bags with leaves and dirt from the local gardens. As the money was for a good cause, we felt this slight embellishment of the truth was okay. That same telethon, I ended up being interviewed on television at the local sports stadium by the world champion New Zealand weightlifter, Precious McKenzie. Little did I know that the money raised that year would go to setting up the Disabled Persons Assembly, or DPA, an organisation I was to have a lot to do with throughout my adult life, as my passion for accessibility and social justice grew. Rachel's family went to church every Sunday, unlike mine. Every week she would head off in a gorgeous dress, so I decided that I wanted to go to Sunday school too, and to acquire a dress for the occasion. To my delight, we ended up with the exact same dress, hers in three shades of blue, mine in three shades of pink. In the end, my time at church was short-lived. I went to Sunday school once and decided it was not for me after all. I was never that good at sitting still for long periods of time. The outdoors was always calling. However, very importantly, I got to keep the fabulous dress. As both my parents had been brought up Presbyterian, it meant they had both attended church regularly throughout their childhoods. Growing up in this way, I think mum in particular, had embraced and absorbed much of Christ's core teachings and philosophies. However, later in life, she rejected the formal church as she saw too many inconsistencies between the original teachings of Christ and the institution. Mum has always read very widely and in her mind started to see the harm that had been caused throughout the globe in the name of religion. So we were brought up with very strong Christian values and visible practical application, but with little formal education in the Bible itself. Mum's greatest wish for each of us was to always question deeply and to think for ourselves. What this gave us was the freedom to create our own language, frameworks, and ways of making sense of the world we lived in. And what this took away from us were the security and stability of imposed language, frameworks, and ways of making sense in the world that come from embracing an established religion. It is the quintessential double-edged sword, one that I am only just now starting to wield with confidence after many years of life lived. Much trial and error, as well as my fair share of heartache and pain. In my experience, being blessed with the freedom to think for oneself, to find due north, and to work out how best to live well, is both a privilege and a very real challenge. However, despite not having the formal presence and structure of church throughout our lives, mum still often quoted passages from the Bible. This was usually done with a slight twist or change from the original text. Precision was never mum's strong suit. She was always more about the spirit of something or the broad sentiment. 
She was always up for a quick rewrite. One of her favorite expressions was, God loveth whom he chasteneth. In other words, the more God loves you, the more you will suffer. I now look back and wonder, were these words an incantation or perhaps a prediction of what was to come? Because all too soon, these words were to take on a whole new meaning for me and my family. All too soon, I was to come face to face with another aspect of life beyond honeysuckle, flitting fantails and glorious sunshine. This incredible life as I had known it was about to come to an abrupt end. I do so hope you enjoyed listening to my book and podcast series, Blindingly Obvious. It has been an absolute privilege to be able to share this with you. Listen out for the next chapter coming soon. If you would like to purchase the entire book in audio or an array of other accessible formats, including New Zealand Sign Language, or to learn more about my work, visit my website, minib.co.nz. Thank you for taking the time to listen and to be with me. See you next time. With love, Mini B.